0: Good evening, this is Cinema 60.
1: The organization, several murders. Could do us both a great deal of good. Look, Chalmers, let's understand each other. I don't like you.
2: Come on now, don't be naive, Lieutenant. We both know how careers are made integrity is something you sell the public you sell
0: whatever you want but don't sell it here tonight
2: frank
1: we must all compromise bullshit get the hell out of here now
2: welcome to cinema 60 hi jenna hi bart got a special guest with us tonight we've got Marshall Terrell who is I don't know is it overstating it to say uh, Marshall that you're the America's foremost expert on Steve McQueen
1: well I would never say that personally but I have heard other people say that
2: well I mean outside of uh, anybody who actually knew him personally I I would say you must know uh, more than just about anybody about the guy you've written seven books on him can you believe it
1: (laughs) I didn't set out to write seven books on him, let's put it that way. But it just so happened that his popularity just never waned. When I wrote that first book, I thought that it kind of was going to be a one and done. And then it just so happened that he kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And people kept asking me to do stuff about Steve McQueen. And I never turned him down because, you know, with books, you want to keep things going. You know, you, I'm kind of like an actor. I just never know, like, when my last gig's going to be. So uh, I say yes to almost everything. Right. <laughs>
2: Um, well, tonight you're joining us mainly because you just had a new Steve McQueen book come out, Steve McQueen in his own words, which is, well, I mean, you, you wrote uh, the introduction and the, and the conclusion there, and the, and then you make some contextual comments throughout. But mostly this is, uh, this is just a, a book of rare Steve McQueen photos and then quotes from him throughout. Over 500, I, I think you said. So how did this book come about?
1: I started this in 2013. And what was happening at that time was, and and keep in mind that I had rewritten my first book on him, it was called Steve McQueen, The Life and Legend of an American Icon, that came out in 2010, and you know that was pretty much the definitive account of McQueen. But year after year, I would see books and bios come out on him, and the, the books that I was seeing, nothing new was happening, there was no new information, they were kind of retreads of everything else, and the thought hit me, wouldn't it be cool if McQueen could write his own book in his own way without any interference from a biographer? And the reason why I thought that was because I remember reading in his wife's book that as he got cancer, you know, he was considering writing his memoir, uh, but his cancer was so advanced that that didn't happen. And then his widow, Barbie, who was my good friend, said, we had also contemplated doing a book, but it was going to be a photo book with uh, our adventures, talking about our adventures on the road and i happened to do that book with her in 2006 that was called steve McQueen: the last mile so as i was thinking about you know like gosh wouldn't it be cool that if he could do his own story in his own way how how could i do that so i started thinking you know i've got 30 years of research in my garage and i've got all the quotes that he ever spoke underlined because i was going to use i used them you know for my other books but i didn't use them all nowhere near and um so I thought, well, if I did this book, I would compile it in a way, it's all chronological. And he starts from you know, talking about his childhood all the way to his death. And I had enough quotes and pictures to support that. So I thought this would be a, a really cool coffee table book using great photos, a lot of photos that were never seen before, and using quotes um, from him that a lot of people have not heard so that they could get a better picture of who he was as a... As a person, so that's in a nutshell what the book is about.
2: Yeah, as a man uh, who's famous for for being a man of few words, it uh, I mean, there <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there can have been too many uh, quotes from him out there to choose from. I know he hated to do interviews and uh, didn't didn't like the press in general. So uh, so where where did you pull most of these quotes from?
1: Well, what you just said is is essentially true. The first half of his career. He spoke to the press a lot because he was building his career. As a matter of fact, he spoke a lot specifically to the gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, and and that was strategic on his part because her column ran six times a week, if you can believe it. So he spoke to her quite a bit, and that was just an easy way for him to keep his name out there while he was trying to build this resume to the top. She died in 1966 couple years after The Great Escape. So by the time that Bullet came out, he was a major, major superstar and he really no longer had to talk to the media. So in the first half of his career, he did. And then it was harder getting quotes from him in the 70s, but I was able to locate things like uh, an interview that was only published in a fireman's magazine. That was given to me by a guy that worked with him on the set of The Tower Inferno. Then I found another interview that he gave on his last film to a, to a high school newspaper of all things. Huh. (laughs) I know Um, his, his publicist, Warren Cowan, who was the most uh, the highest powered publicist in Hollywood looked at this kid and said, how did you do it? He goes, well, I just asked him. And, And Steve basically said, you know, I like kids. So that's why I gave him the interview. And then I've got an interview with him on his deathbed. That was about three weeks before he passed away where he talks for 45 minutes and he reviews his life. So, um, oh, and then I was able to also locate a tape recording that he did. Actually, he made an appearance at Loyola Marymount in 1978, when he did a screener for an enemy of the people. And so through all those sources, I was able to piece everything together.
2: It's really an interesting way to tell his story because you don't necessarily connect the dots. You let the words speak for themselves and uh, and, the, and the pictures. So it's more of just giving you the feeling of Steve McQueen and just giving a uh, an impressionistic picture of his life rather than this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And, this happened, and, this happened. and I, I really enjoyed going through the book that way, just, uh, you know, trying to piece together who this guy was just on these on these snapshots and these little quotes.
0: Right. And it's it's so funny to see how much how open he really was when he did talk. You know, it's, it's interesting to see that even in a book that's made up only of things that that he's, he's quoted as saying, you get a really full portrait of this guy as being both flawed and, and human and, and interesting. And there's certainly plenty of quotes that you have in this book. It's, it's not a, you know, this isn't like a, a glamour coffee table as much as it really is. Um, there's plenty of things that he says that are not terribly nice or flattering even you know, we were talking about him with women. He says, the women I've I've always been involved with have always thought of me as a chauvinist pig and I don't really give a damn. <laughs>
1: yeah, and that's a great observation by you because I was telling somebody that when he gave interviews, you know, I, I look at Denzel Washington and I, I watch him give interviews. He doesn't like talking about himself at all. He doesn't like talking about him as an actor. But in, in, in regard to McQueen, when he did give interviews, you get little flashes here and there he'd open up just a little bit. So yes, even though he's very open in this book, you had to look for those little moments to try and capture. So th- those were the quotes that I did extract were the ones that you know, he did tell you about himself or what he was really thinking.
2: Uh, but for the most part, he was pretty guarded. It, what's interesting is he's always going off about phonies. He hates phonies. He only wants real people in his life, and it seems like any unpleasantness he ever expressed towards people were because he felt like they weren't real. They were pretending to be something or trying to use him for something. But at the same time, we, you know, he's he's railing against these phonies, but he's also like giving these completely contradictory statements about himself all the time. You know, he'll talk about how. I, I, I don't have the quotes handy here, but he's just full of contradictions. He'll talk about what a family man he is, and then uh, clearly was uh, a womanizer. He liked to sleep around, but there just seems to be this, this inherent contradiction between who he was and who he thought he was and who he actually was. All, all three of those things are sort of in conflict with each other.
1: Yes, and and, and I purposely put those contradictory quotes in there because he was contradictory And and maybe I can explain a little bit of it. There's a great quote in the book about how all of his life, you know, he he was a a very troubled child, went to reform school, you know, didn't have anything going for him. And the quote in the book is something like, "Uh, I had red lights growing up all my life, and then I got to Hollywood, and then suddenly everything green lights. And he says, and green lights can be a problem too. So he grew up, there was no normalcy. So, you know, on the one hand, he's out and out rejected for the first half of his life. And then the second half of his life, it's like he's now been admitted to Candyland, and he can get anything that he wants. And that's the thing is that he did want to be that person on the screen, and so that's where the contradiction comes in. You know, he had an ideal of himself on the screen, but then in private, he was the complete opposite. Uh, You know, he was some of those things, but he was also he uh, portrayed himself as the all-American hero, but he's a very insecure guy, and that's why you know I've written pretty much seven books on the guys because. He never gets old because he's so complex.
0: I love there was one photo where it's like him playing a saxophone, and you have a little note on the side about like he thought about being a jazz musician for a while, and like here's a publicity photo, but he wasn't a great musician. So he, he did got into acting, and it's like, as you both mentioned, it's that that sort of at at conflict with this concept of of a phony but also i mean i it's just really interesting to see somebody sort of putting themselves out there in, in such a way clearly he wanted to do it he obviously thought that jazz was cool and wanted to be part of that scene and probably was part of that scene. I feel like looking at his life, he seems to me like the sort of bridge between the beatniks and the hippies. (laughs) He uh, was living in, in West village and in the city and, and kind of palling around with like a a strange sort of fringe group of, of people and then getting pulled into stardom and becoming someone who then spent his life sort of rebelling against that.
1: Yep, And you hit it right on the nose In, in New York city. He hung out with uh, Miles Davis and a lot of the jazz people. And, you know, the quote in the book is, you know, I gave I gave it a shot, but I, I, I witnessed these guys didn't eat too well. They didn't eat regular. And so that's why he he gave it up. Now, I don't have any doubt he had any musical ability <laughs> and he certainly had no singing ability. But, yeah, he hung out and he, you can hear some of it in the book, but he talked like a jazz cat. And um, so, yeah, right. some of that that language was from the from the beatniks and then of course he got the hollywood and, and nobody could really understand him and jacqueline Bissett had, had said on the on the set of boat that he tried to talk to her but she she could barely understand a word he said because he talked so hip so uh <laughs> yeah he he was definitely and that was again another contradiction i mean th- here's a guy out of the midwest talking new york slang and then gets to hollywood and uh they don't know what to make of him. it's just again Everything with him is an interesting dichotomy.
2: Yeah, he's always talking about the juice that he's you know he's <laughs> got to have the juice, which uh, you know, took a few quotes before I realized he was talking about oh it's I have the power to you know, control things to my liking like that's what the juice is juice is power, and uh, yeah and throughout his life he continued to use a lot of the same lingo so that's it's kind of interesting that he held on to that uh, that sort of New York jazz beatnik style of talking
1: yeah and it gives him a distinct personality i mean and you can clearly see in your head as you read these words and and the phrases that he used you go oh okay that's Mm. that guy
2: well, this is, uh, this is a show about 60s cinema, so let's kind of get into uh, Steve's film career in the 60s because, uh, you know, more than anything, he is a man of the 60s. His greatest successes were in the 60s. That's when he became a giant star. I mean, he had some big movies in the 70s, but when you think of McQueen, you think of Bullet, Great Escape, Magnificent Seven, you know, these, well, and also Papillon, which is my personal favorite of his, but that's, uh, I think, 73. So, uh, so we can't talk about that too much, but... Uh, but yeah, he's he's Mr. 60s. And uh, on the show, we, we tend to, to talk about this sort of ideal 60s man. Sexually liberated. Well, maybe sexually liberated is not the word. But wanting it all. Like wanting money, wanting power, wanting women. Like this is the... This is sort of the 60s dream that we keep coming back to on the show. And Steve McQueen seemed to capture all of those things, the very face of that. So, um, so we're yeah, we're really excited to have you on. So you could uh, talk to Mr. King of Cool, Mr. 60s himself, Steve McQueen. How does Steve McQueen represent the 60s as, as far as you're concerned?
1: You hit it on the head. And, and he's two people in my mind. He's a guy from the Mad Men era you know, those guys that didn't complain or explain. And and then he changed with the time when the um, 60s became sexually liberated. He was older. He was approaching his midlife crisis when all that hit. And he adopted that as well. So, you know, he was married at the time and his wife was saying that he adopted the hippie's lifestyle, especially when it came to free sex. He had smoked dope marijuana daily since the fifties. And then he, he incorporated some harder drugs into his life in, in the late sixties, but he was very much a man of that decade, but I wouldn't say his personality changed, but he adapted to that lifestyle. And the other interesting thing about him is that even though he's cool, um, McQueen, and I'm talking now cinema, you know, you look at the films of the sixties and McQueen wanted superstardom in the worst way. And he wanted to be in big films. And when we think of the 60s, we think of films that are very artistic and changing. And even though he tried to do a little of that with Bullet, to me, he remains kind of like this guy that represents the big studio during a system where everybody... Was trying to get go in a different direction so that's kind of how he strikes me
0: right it, it's almost like a, another <laughs> contradiction because on one hand you have this guy who i also i agree i when i think of the the big studio hollywood 60s films steve mcqueen is is up front and center and then at the same time you're looking at his life he had such an unconventional life even unconventional interests even his whole thing with cars at least came stemmed from the fact that he would repair things that that actually had some reality and not just like a rich man's hobby. And then, you know, everything that he seemed to stand for really was what ended up being the late 60s mantra, you know, like freedom, rebellion, free love, style. It really is kind of funny because I never even thought of him as that type of person really until reading, uh, your, your book. (laughs) I really hadn't thought about Steve McQueen out off of the, the screen.
1: Well, and that, that's exactly why he's so fascinating is because again, he gave off that image, even a bullet. He's this cop, uh, who has short hair and, you know, everybody at that time had long hair, but he's, uh, just as hip as anybody in the street. and As a matter of fact, there's a quote in the book where he, he talks about the hippies and he said, like, hey, don't be hard on the hippies. They uh, wear their hair long, and it takes a brave man to do that. And he had this half-farmer, half-street kid in him that was able to straddle that line beautifully. Uh, but, again, you, you know, when when you talked about how you were surprised that he was that guy, well, yeah, he was that guy, behind the scenes. And he partook of every 60s drug and sex and rock and roll mantra that, that he could. He just, he wanted to take advantage of it all. But again, it, it kind of came during his midlife crisis, the fact that he was his family man, and it was very, very conflicting for him. And, and sadly, you know, it broke up his marriage.
0: It seems like it was conflicting. I, You know, that that's also a contradiction of the decade. There's so much conflict about, you know, we were just talking about the Rat Pack recently, and it's the same sort of, you know, these guys who project this image of fooling around and having fun, and yet... And they did, but uh, they also weren't nearly as as hip as they sort of portrayed themselves to be. As much as they were sort of let things conveniently come to them when they did, and otherwise they also never, of course, always wanted to be a you know married and and look like they had things together uh, as far as appearances go. So it yeah, it's definitely a strange time, but it is kind of cool to to see someone who actually you know, was, was open to, to also living it. And it didn't seem to be embarrassed by uh, embracing the hippies uh, as much as a lot of other people were at the time. Uh, and also be just openly, you know, he was 100% on the hating cops (laughs) train. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, he had been, he had been picked up enough by them growing up, but, um, When he did Bullet, you know, you you read where he uh, did his preparation and he got a different look at things. And, you know, I think he said something. And and by the way, this was happening when the Zodiac Killer was out, you know, leaving bodies behind. So it's quite possible that some of the bodies that that he saw when he went out with these two detectives were were in fact uh, victims of the the Zodiac Killer.
0: Right. Yeah. Let's I mean, let's get into it. Uh, Let's talk about Bullet from 1968, which is directed by Peter Yates. us an amazing uh, story about how this movie came to be and everything that went into it and part of what you mentioned was the fact that steve mcqueen ended up following around he didn't want to play a cop initially he was sort of totally put off by that and then ended up following around uh, uh, dave toshi was was one of the cops that he followed around who he uh, sort of based bullet on right That's even correct. though toshi was wearing a bow tie and suspenders instead of <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's Mark Ruffalo in the in the Zodiac movie, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it would be the completely opposite of what McQueen did on screen. But that was the
1: beauty of McQueen. It was that he was able to take something and make it his own. Uh, most actors, I would believe, would probably like follow it to the T in terms of like if they saw Toshi dressing like that, well then that's how they dress. But not McQueen. McQueen was like, Nah, I got to be cool. I got <laughs> I got to look like a matinee idol. But but you know that that worked for him. But here's the interesting part. McQueen didn't want to do the movie, and he was getting a haircut by his stylist, Jay Sebring. And his um, first wife, Neil, had mentioned, hey, are you going to do Bullet? And he's like, he said something effective, because I, I would never play a cop. Man, those kids would turn on me so fast, it would make your head spin. But it was Jay Sebring, who ironically was a victim of the Manson family killing, who basically kind of leaned over and said, you know, you could probably do something really cool with the cop. And that's what changed McQueen's mind. Huh and um that's what finally turned him around to doing the part
2: and the movies sort of um it's definitely on the side of the cops the you know McQueen the head detective and the chief his uh, his police chief they're all they're all good guys and they're just trying to do what's right the, this movie instead I think in the spirit of 1968 really is is sort of pointing at the politicians as the real bad guys Robert Vaughn plays um, U.S Senate Aid.
0: Senator Walter Chalmers.
2: Chalmers, yeah, he's uh, he's got the snitch for the mob that he has in San Francisco, and Frank Bullitt, played by Steve McQueen, that you know he's trying to keep this snitch from uh, from being killed before he can testify, and this is all just so Chalmers can improve his standing, be you know be more respected by his constituents, and uh, you just you know become a you know move to the next level in uh, in, in politics, you know, be hold a higher office. And he's, he seems to be the real villain in this movie that the cops don't really get along with this guy. And, and he's, uh, he's definitely slimy. Like, even if what he's doing, you know, trying to take down the organization, that's a good thing. But he's still so slimy and self-serving that he is the stand-in. He's the, he's the person on the screen that the kids in 1968 are, you know, supposed to hate instead of the cops. And I think it's really effective in that way. You really like the cops in, in Bullet. Yes. And,
1: and, and it's funny, the those themes sort of even resonate very strong today. But McQueen I did really well in picking Robert Vaughn in that role, because you're right, he was, he was the real heavy. Even though there were actual killers in the movie, Vaughn's the one that you remember.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It was funny watching this again. I It's been a while since I'd see. Actually, you know, the first time I saw Bullet, I was living in San Francisco, which I went to the Castro Theater to go, go see it, which was perfect. <laughs> I recommend it. If you live in San Francisco, then you should go see Bullet. But um, the first time I saw this, I was sort of more blinded by it uh, just being like a perfect action film. We'll get to the car chase in a second, but watching it now... Uh, and thinking a bit more about it and maybe also due to to the time that I'm watching it and it was really interesting to see this as this sort of rebel film and see it as this, as you mentioned, Robert Vaughn being the bad guy because he is, he's the sort of uptight square and McQueen is just the coolest dude (laughs) around. He doesn't have to say anything and he's the coolest guy around. Look at that turtleneck and tweed jacket. That guy is is dynamite. like.
1: (laughs) Well, I would have to ask you guys this, because I, I, I'm always curious about how people perceive McQueen. So when you saw the movie, what, what did you think of the pace?
2: It's it's very deliberately paced. Um, it's it's not fast moving. I mean, there's the famous car chase, which is really exciting. But it's, um, you know, leading up to that point, and even after that point, it's it really takes its time. But it, at no point is it boring at all, mainly because you're so drawn to McQueen. Like he's just such a charismatic person that he's, he, you know, he's so easy to watch. He doesn't have to say anything. You just want to watch him, but there's, you know, it builds up the story. It gives you a lot of mystery. It's, you know, this the story is is sometimes called incomprehensible or silly, but it's, it's. I mean, it's, it's fairly comprehensible. It doesn't give you a lot of information at the beginning. So you're lost for the, the first third of this movie not knowing really what's going on but then it's sort of everything sort of falls into place and it becomes sort of a simple double cross sort of movie and uh i think that mystery of the first third where you're not really where it's all just style and you're, you're not sure what's going on and, and it, it just it sucks you in it's it's i think yates can take a lot of the credit for making this sort of deliberately paced procedural really exciting even though there's not a whole lot happening on the screen yeah
0: yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that, that Bart and I are even great examples of, of sample because we have a lot of patience, I think, <laughs> watching uh, a lot of these 60s films. And the pacing obviously is so much more deliberate in these older movies than they are now. But um, for me, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think that it's deliberate, but it's on point. There's really not a time where I'm wondering why we, we are somewhere. It always is following uh, the narrative. It's always you're happy to be wherever they're putting you, though. I I definitely think that this movie, you know, it starts so strong, and the second half is exciting and it's and it's cool. But it's like the fatal mistake of thinking there's really any gas in the tank after that car chase, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so it's so showstopper. And it's only to the credit of the filmmakers, but I don't think they realize just how maybe, and maybe they did. I, it's hard not to realize just how amazing that that middle part is. So it's really hard afterward to be as excited about that. But I don't. I think it's fun. I mean, and one of my favorite scenes of this movie is is when they're all uh, staring at that telecopier.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this this movie is really fascinated by sort of the modern technology of 1968 the uh, the hospital in which a big chunk of this movie is set is really fetishized like it really loves to show you all of the surgical equipment and the and the machines that are keeping track of the the, the vital signs and it's just really like you know like mcqueen himself it seemed really interested in the machinery in that hospital and that telecopier and uh, and just really looking at at how these things work, you know, and it is a police procedural. So it's sort of in keeping with the whole theme of we're not going to show you a bang, 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 you know, one thing after another, after another happening, we're going to show you how these things actually work. We're going to sort of submerge you in this atmosphere and uh, and you'll get a real sense of 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 the inner workings. And I I think the movie is a great success for that reason
1: yeah those and those are all great observations because um the the one quote i want to read you guys was from alan Trussman, the the writer <clears throat> told me he said do you know what a hook is a hook is a device to keep the audience in their seat if you go out to buy the popcorn during the picture you're going to miss one line and you won't understand the movie and the confusion is deliberate there's an inherent plot and you don't pull it off on the screen it's the opposite of television a television audience." gets infuriated if they don't understand what's going on every five minutes. A movie is locked into it by the confusion. And I love that quote because um, that's exactly what this movie is. Because a lot of people, they, they they see the image of Bullet, they see the car, and they think they're getting you know an action movie. And I think it's a little bit slower paced than that. So people are a little bit surprised when they see Bullet for the first time. That's why I asked you that question. But um, what I love about this movie is that it's a big studio film but mcqueen and he he gave a wonderful quote in his own words about stealing everything he could from the usc students to incorporate it and put it in this movie so this is a big studio film with all those little touches that you would see perhaps in a student film and mcqueen made it a point of shooting everything on location and the studio was upset that it was going to cost him 500 extra thousand dollars to do that but I call this a jazz movie because it has a jazz score, but it's also got a lot of improv in it. And, um, you know, a lot of the scenes, a lot of the setups were just done very, very quickly. Something might have been in the script, but then they might say, okay, well, let's try this restaurant and let's shoot it from this camera angle. And I'm specifically thinking of in the movie, if you see him, he gets clipped in the eye by this menu. Well, that was something that actually did happen and they just kept it in. And that's what I love about this movie is like, It's not perfect, but it's got all these great little improvisational moments that make it interesting.
2: So this was a production of, I mean, it was a Warner Brothers Seven Arts film, but it was produced by Steve McQueen's production company, Solar Productions. What else had they done up to this point?
1: This was their very first film under the banner. The interesting thing was they made the deal under Jack Warner. and, And Robert Relia, the producer, told me that the meeting... For him to green light it literally took one minute. It was basically, why does Steve want to do this film while there's incredible civil demonstrations? And he said, because Steve thinks he can do something different from the cop. So uh, Warner said, can you deliver it to me by Christmas? And he said, yes, if we get started immediately. He said, okay, we'll go ahead and make your film. A few weeks after Warner Brothers has sold the seven arts and they merge and a different studio head comes in and You know, he gives McQueen a very, very hard time. And so um, this is how the movie's being made. And it's made under these very, very troubled circumstances in which, um, you know, they really don't want to do the film, but they've got this commitment. McQueen had a six-picture commitment to Warner Brothers. And because he was arguing with his executive, he said, tell you what, love, why don't we just uh, turn this six-picture deal into a one-picture deal? So they shot the movie. And Warner Brothers never thought that it would be the huge success that it was, and so um, you had this animosity going all throughout the picture.
0: Yeah, you said this movie made like it was like fifty million or something, which was the equivalent of seven hundred million.
1: Well, uh, there are there again, there are all sorts of um, rumors, and uh, I happen to think that it probably grossed about eighty million because the producer admitted to seventy three million because he he took out a billboard. Uh, and put it on the sunset strip saying it grows 73 million at one time um, but Trustman, who was the screenwriter basically said what happened was is that in the six week of uh, in, of bullets run they re-released the movie but, and they made it a double feature with Bonnie and clyde and because they owned bonnie and clyde outright they did all the accounting and everybody knew what bonnie and clyde was so they saw that but they also saw bullet but they marked all the expenses for a bullet. And so no one really knows how much it, it grossed. But if, again, if the producer came out and said that it made 73 million, I'm, I'm probably thinking it probably grossed closer to 80. The studio only claimed it grossed like 19 million. So, but uh, really told me that McQueen got a very, very big check when they uh, contested the numbers.
2: Well, regardless of how much this movie actually made, it is, it's a huge cultural touchstone. I mean, you refer to it as McQueen's defining movie, and uh, well, maybe you could talk about why why you consider it his defining movie. Well,
1: certainly not the, not acting, because I agree with you regarding Papillon. I, I felt that Papillon was his finest hour as an actor, but uh, Bullet uh, it's so iconic, and that he's so linked with the car and the turtleneck and the tweed jacket, and of course, this was the movie that that turned him into a superstar. You know, The Great Escape made him into a movie star, but there's a big distinction between a movie star and a superstar. Today we have Brad Pitt, we have Leonardo DiCaprio, we only have a couple of superstars. So that film and, and McQueen are interlinked together for all time.
2: Well, if if you don't mind, actually, could you could you take us through the sixties and, and McQueen's career and sort of how things built up to this point in, in nineteen sixty eight where when Bullet came out he became you know the world's biggest star? Like how, how did that build up happen?
1: Well, it it, it it happened slowly. Um, he was I love the movie Once Upon um, a Time in Hollywood because you know they start off with Leonardo DiCaprio in this Western series, and they base that loosely on One a Dead or Alive, which is where Steve McQueen was at the start of his career. He started in television, and McQueen wanted in the worst way to become a movie star because he felt that television stardom was okay. It paid the bills, but it wasn't anything like movie stardom, which would last forever. So he spent his summer seasons making films uh, in order to try to break him into the big league. And remember, in the 60s, there was a very big line of demarcation when it came to television and movie. Today, everybody kind of crosses back and forth and in between. Uh, but back then, you know, it, it was no no television star had ever made the jump to movie stardom. So when he did one, A Dead or Alive, he did three films. That the show shot for three seasons, and he did Never So Few with Frank Sinatra, which was a not a bit part, a little bit bigger than a bit part, but it got him noticed by movie producers. And then the second one was The Magnificent Seven, and that was a very, very big role. He took second lead credit uh, under Yul Brynner, and he got a lot of attention from that. And then, of course, on the third year, he made a movie. I think it was called The Hell for Heroes. And then the series is canceled. And then he made a couple of films. But the big one that, that pushed him over the edge was uh, The Great Escape in 1963. And so that he entered the realm of uh, movie stardom. And he was the actual first television star to make that jump.
2: Literally make that jump. <laughs>
1: Literally. Uh, I mean, the, the jump in The Great Escape is a great metaphor for his leap into movie stardom. And then starting in 65, two years after The the, the uh, Great Escape, he had this five-picture run of hits. And it was The Cincinnati Kid, uh, Nevada Smith, The Sand Pebbles, Thomas Crown Affair, and then Bullet. And each one of them was subsequently bigger than the other. But Bullet, by far, outpaced all of the others. Because we talked about the movie Gross, and it would have been equivalent to, I think, 760 million dollar in today's dollars if that so that gives you an idea of how big that film was it
0: i think it it makes a lot of sense to me that bullet ended up being this defining movie for him because i think that really what what makes bullet stand out is its sense of style for a movie to come out about like a, a rebel cop (laughs) clearly in the late 60s wasn't destined to get anywhere, but to have Steve McQueen play it, to have something that felt really European to be shot on location, to have this amazing Lalo Schifrin soundtrack that is totally iconic, to have all of these really great camera work in general and angles that really put you in the seat. What I love about that car chase is the fact that it feels just scary. (laughs) It feels really real. But, you know, I think that to have someone who just looks so cool it is so undeniably cool uh, it crosses you know gender barriers it crosses uh, age barriers it it's just it's just fun you know you you want to be in this world you want to be in that San Francisco even though uh, as as he says in the movie you know like half of it's a a sewer <laughs> and we're all living in it it's like yeah like absolutely it it also has a level of truth that a lot of 60s movies don't you know and and speaking to mcqueen's hatred of phonies i think that bullet deals with a a part of culture that people were trying to avoid, especially in Hollywood. You know, this was even as previous movies are, are not that they're not good movies. They're great, but they're, they're very much like these kind of like manly men doing, yes. <laughs> you know, man things. And, and that has, that's, that's just as fun, but it, it's a little more conventional. And, and this weirdly, it really is just sort of a, a beautiful, strange little picture. His commitment
2: to reality is, is, so obvious in this movie like you can tell that that he had a hand in in producing it because i mean there are no process shots in this everything is on location everything is is a real location nothing is in studio like you are in this place and that's obviously that's the aesthetic that steve wanted for this film and it also carries through to his performance all of his performances but in this movie in particular it's such a real I don't know if "raw" is is the right word, but it's mm-hmm. you just read so much on his face. I mean, he's sort of famous for going through his scripts and, and scratching out lines and saying, "No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that," and, and just letting the scene go dialogue free and just you know reacting or telling his side of of the conversation just by the look on his face. But uh, I
0: think an, an argument can be made for him being almost a brilliant silent film actor. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, and and the, and the
1: director William Friedkin uh, of Exorcist fame. Said that about McQueen, like if he was born in, you know, a a, a few decades earlier, he would have been a silent screen star. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. Great, I'm glad me and Friedkin are on the same page.
1: (laughs) And by the way, I love Friedkin. He's one of my favorite film directors. He's great. Yeah, but um, McQueen was a great film actor. A lot of people say, well, he just played himself, but I think the two of you, in hearing your tone, you get the idea that he was very, very committed to his roles, and he was very committed you know, to all his roles equally, but especially this one. Authenticity was, was his driving force as an actor. Uh, but but to get to the the one point that you made about the San Francisco aesthetic, the city claims that that was the greatest commercial ever for travel in the in the history of, of San Francisco. And many, many European uh, people that I talk to who are McQueen fans, I always ask them, well, you know, if you were to come to the States, what's the... Uh, What's the one place that you would go? What's the one city you'd visit? And I would think, you know, uh, New York or Los Angeles, but almost every single one of them says San Francisco. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, he definitely, he built he helped build the, the legend of San Francisco. And I'm from New York. I When I moved there, uh, it was in part chasing this sort of 60s dream of San Francisco, which, of course, uh, you know, McQueen helped build uh, on top of um, – uh, any any other sort of like hippie understanding of, of the area. I mean, like, and I'm here I am showing up in like the late 2000s thinking like, it's going to be just like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's still, at least it still looks as beautiful, but a little different.
2: As Steve McQueen spent a lot of his career chasing after Paul Newman, like that was sort of his, his ideal of who he wanted to be. He wanted to re- achieve that level of stardom. So you can see in a lot of the choices of his roles that he's sort of trying to do Paul Newman. and But, you know, he, he's got his own thing. Uh, can you speak a little about the, uh, the sort of one-sided competition between, between uh, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman? Sure. And, and you, you hit it on the head. It was definitely
1: one-sided. Um, McQueen needed somebody, he, j- just because of his personality, he needed somebody to try and measure up to. Now, Newman wasn't actually the first person. It was James Dean. And um, anything that James Dean got, because those two were born the same year and they were both Midwesterners and they both started around the same time. And anytime James Dean got something, McQueen was not happy. As a matter of fact, one of the quotes in the book is, I'm glad Dean's dead. It makes more room for me. (laughs) And it's a terrible, terrible quote, but I left it in there because I just thought, well, people need to know this is how he viewed his competition. The two actually met. McQueen was a mechanic in New York City. And Martin Landau told me this story. Landau was good friends with uh, James Dean. And Dean was on a motorcycle and Landau was, uh, you know, riding on the back. And they pull into this garage and Dean's telling McQueen what what's wrong with the bike. And McQueen's listening. Dean never knew that he was an actor because Dean was famous at the time. McQueen was not. And so, um, so James Dean was kind of the, the yardstick. And then when he died, then that fascination or that, that fixation switched to Paul Newman because the very first film that Steve McQueen did was as a $19 day extra and somebody up there likes me. And the star was Paul Newman. And uh, again, Newman's wife uh, actually had acting classes with McQueen. So they were all part of that New York uh, acting circle. And uh, anytime anybody became famous or got a gig, uh, McQueen was very, very upset with people. So um, that was just kind of who he was. So... You know they had an opportunity. the 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 very next film after Bullet was going to be Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid. It was a question just of billing, and so after Bullet, McQueen was the hotter star, but Newman had been established a little bit longer, and was a star a little bit longer. And McQueen actually wanted Newman to flip a coin on who would be, who would be the star and who wasn't. And Newman wasn't going to do that. So <laughs> a couple of years later, when the when the, when the time came for The Tower of Inferno, they're both their agents. Freddie Fields said, hey, how about this? You know, try, here's one on the left. It's a little bit lower. And then here's one on the right. And I'll, it's a little bit on uh, on the higher end. And uh, Newman being Newman, who was a really decent human being, said, I'll take either or. So McQueen said, okay, well, I'll take the one on the left. So um, that's how that ultimately got resolved. But yeah, it, the competition was, was basically McQueen. It was one-sided. N- Newman didn't really of fall
2: into that trap well didn't on that movie well this we're talking we're in the 70s now but it's still it's still too interesting not to mention didn't mcqueen actually he was offered the paul newman role and then he decided to be the fireman instead the smaller role because it was you know the flashier more heroic role
1: yes and, and there's a great backstory to this but yes he did read for that that was originally offered to mcqueen first He didn't feel like it had anything and i think the fireman role was about 10 or 12 lines and it was going to be ernest borgnine who was fresh off of the Poseidon adventure but mcqueen came back to the producer uh, erwin allen and said if you can beef up this um, role i'll take it and so he did but then what happened was is that uh, a screenwriter by the name of sterling silliphon who was the, the number one screenwriter in the world at that time um was given the task of beefing up McQueen's part. So when he, McQueen read it, he counted all the lines that Newman had, and then he counted all the lines that he had. And there were still a couple bit more lines that Newman had. So Sterling Siliphant was out on a deep sea fishing expedition, and McQueen had the power to have him call back in to rewrite this script and um, have it to where they both had an equal amount of lines. And... It doesn't. It gets. It gets better. So when they get on the set, Sterling Siliphant has to keep both of their confidences. He's he's changing the script constantly. So Newman would walk into his office and say, "Hey, what's going on here? I, I thought I was going to say this line," and Siliphant couldn't say that McQueen changed the line. So he said, "Okay, don't worry about it. I'll I'll I'll, I'll put it back." So then when he did, McQueen would come to Siliphant and say. Hey, I thought Paul was going to say this line. <laughs> this this went on and on, but that just goes to show you how how competitive McQueen was.
2: Yeah, that really comes through in your book that he really like just had this drive that he you know, you do whatever it takes to always be the best at everything, like you know, the biggest star, the best gambler in Cincinnati kid, the you know, every everything he took on, he had to be the absolute best. And that you can. It, it's easy to sort of picture that side of him, but that's not really something that you see in many of his roles. His his roles are more. I mean, not bullet necessarily, but he's always um, you know kind of the, the the bad boy. You have a quote in your book that I really like, um, and this is actually you talking, and not uh, Steve McQueen, but you say that uh, McQueen was at his best when playing guys who are struggling to be better men. And I think that's really true. Like, that's what I see in McQueen and what really draws me to him. I mean, there is this aspect of trying to do better, be better. But he's, like, he's always so behind this masculine exterior. There's always this sort of vulnerability, like, you know, trying to trying to figure out the right thing to do. Like, this sort of, this sensitivity where he, he's, like, he's not just going to, like... You know, bash down doors. He's gonna sort of sit back and, and consider is is this the right thing to do? And uh, yeah, I think your uh, your book really gets that across really well.
1: Well, thank you. And and but that all goes to the we talked about earlier the contradiction of yeah he he did try to be a good man, but you know he was faced with all these temptations that we don't know about. I mean, let's be honest. If if we were if we as men were put in the same position that he was in in that time frame who's to say that we would not have caved into those same temptations? I think Chris Rock has a very famous quote that he does in his um, comedy bit. And he says, uh, a man is as faithful as his options. Well, Steve McQueen had a lot of options. (laughs) So um, who's to say that, that that we wouldn't have taken those same paths that he did. And so, you know, you throw drugs and alcohol into the mix and he sounds like he probably uh, had a mood disorder. And then the fact that he's this famous guy, and I'm sure that he's very, very confused trying to navigate all this. Uh, there are elements of him in his personal life where he is trying to be better. The, the sad part is is that he's he's fighting all this at the same time. So it's just, uh, that's why, again, he's endlessly fascinating.
0: Yeah, there is something to be said for... Steve McQueen does not sound like somebody who I in my personal life would have, would have liked. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed like a bit much. <laughs> but... Uh... I do, I do I do, feel for him, especially knowing more than I'm sure he ever would have wanted strangers really to know in a way, knowing about his uh, rough childhood and being able to see him as this more insecure and, and jealous person, it's clearly stuff that he was sort of trying to hide, but yet yeah. being upfront about it more than he realized. But yeah, I know, you know, all of these guys these anyone who's famous, I think there is they, they are being put in in a, a really a wild position. It's almost like what you see happen to the vast majority of people who uh, win the lottery or something. Yes. And when you're suddenly have all of this cash on hand where you previously did not, it's when you start making dumb decisions, mm-hmm. you know, and and or, you know, let yourself kind of get away and and live in the moment uh, that you have. And there's some argument to be made too for the fact that Hey, you know he's one in a million. Just go for it.
1: <laughs> well, and this this what you just said reminds me of a quote in the book about, uh, and I'm sure you'll remember this when I mention it. But he he talked about looking at a, a movie magazine with Tony Curtis in it, and Tony Curtis is in the driveway. He's got like ten cars lined up, and he's looking at which car he's going to take to work that day. And McQueen said something like, "I'll be damned," and then he said it wasn't five years later. That I was making big bucks and scoring, and I was buying every motorcycle I could, every piece of clothing that I could, and then I started getting into cars. And he goes, and I'll be damned if I didn't do the same thing. And there's a there's a beautiful picture of him looking at two Ferraris, right? Uh, and he's <laughs> trying to figure out which one he's going to take to work.
2: <laughs> so are you a, are you a car guy yourself?
1: Believe it or not, I am not. And so I always <laughs> tell people when I cover McQueen. Don't ask me any mechanical things. Don't ask me anything about cars. You know, you're either a car person or you're not. You're you're kind of born with that gene in you. So um, I I tend to focus on his personal life and his films. And the car thing, I always just figure it'll take care of itself.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a car person myself. But, you know, that that car chase and bullet and, you know, that Ford Mustang and the Dodge Charger, those are beautiful cars. and, And I... I love to watch him you know, flying over the hills of San Francisco. And you don't—you don't have to be a car person to, to see the beauty in that.
1: Yep, yep. And and the interesting thing about that is Warner Brothers, again, having that that relationship with them, uh, with under the new boss, they were going over budget, and he, I I think he held that car chase over McQueen's head and basically said, if you go over budget anymore, we're not going to film the car chase. So it would be interesting to me that if uh, that the the chase never got made in it. They would have cut the budget on the film. So, uh, you know, it it just would not have worked.
0: Yeah, I mean, modern day car chases, it's one of my least favorite (laughs) things in movies half the time because they're just so, they just feel really sterile uh, now in comparison. They're very choreographed and they're very like slick. You know, there's a lot of these drone shots or overhead shots or even they're more, I find they're actually they're more fun to see the making of the car chases than yeah. it is to watch the car chases half the time. But the, the car chase in bullet is just it, it it's, a, you know, <laughs> it's just perfect there. It's like a course you can't actually speed in it. You feel every single bump. You There's nothing that's unrealistic happening, but it's completely extraordinary at the same time. It really is just outstanding.
1: Yes, and they were shooting at actual speed. So Right. I remember talking to the cinematographer, William Fraker, who said that uh, the top speed they got up to was like 124 miles an hour, which would never be done today. Okay. But uh, <laughs> yeah. they were just, they were kind of fun and reckless and hey, it was the 60s and that's just what they did. And I'm sure um, in between they were probably drinking beers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Watching this movie this time around, too, I was uh, reminded more so than Dirty Harry, which I think is the obvious uh, comparison. And the obvious, uh, you know, was Bullet was an obvious influence for Dirty Harry, though, for the record, I think that Bullet could definitely beat up Dirty Harry. (laughs) But um, I was thinking actually more about Point Blank. The John Borman film. And I noticed in your book that you had a, a photo of the McQueen's uh, dancing at the rap party for Point Blank. I don't Do you know how much of an influence that was on Bullet? Uh,
1: you know, knowing McQueen, um, I, I know that he, he he liked Lee Marvin. I'm, I'm not so sure McQueen um, looked upon uh, Marvin as much competition. I, I don't think I don't think it was an influence. Again, I'm going to refer back to what he said in the book, and that was he looked at a lot of student films uh, at USC and that was more influential than anything. And again, the quote was, I looked at those films and I stole everything that I could. So, uh, (laughs) but didn't you love that picture of the rat party? They were all dancing in 60s style dance. You know, they were
2: just let, they were letting loose. I'll tell you what my absolute favorite picture is in the book it's a late career picture. It's one where uh, Steve is in Mexico where he's been diagnosed with cancer and he's seeking out some uh, alternative medicine, uh, s- some, some natural uh, homeopathic uh, remedies. And he's in Mexico and there's this shot where um, he's leaning up against a pole and yeah. there's a kid in front of the, the Pepsi sign there. It was a picture he said was taken by his wife, Barbara, at the time. And that's a gorgeous shot.
1: And that's a cool shot because Barbara, who was the widow, was a former model. So... You know, I've 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 found the former models make great photographers because they they've studied with the greats and uh, and that particular picture that you're talking about, there's a uh, a local girl that just kind of wandered into the picture. Just Steve was posing as you can see, but um, there was this little girl that just kind of wandered into the picture, and so Barbara snapped that picture at just at that very moment. And there's like a Pepsi painted on the wall. So I agree with you. It's it's a really cool shot. He still looks okay. How about if either you guys tell me your favorite quotes or I'll, I'll tell you three of mine and I'll go through them quickly, um, why I like them. And then they'll, they'll kind of give you the essence of uh, who Steve McQueen was. But I'd love to hear what your favorite quotes were and why they resonated with you. If that's not too corny. No,
0: let's do it. Well, let's start with yours. What, what were your favorite quotes?
1: Well, the, the first, the I've got three favorite quotes from Steve McQueen in his own words. And the first one, it appeals to the journalist in me. And I think it would appeal to anybody who has an ounce of curiosity. And, and the quote is, there's nothing in the world that I don't want to know. And McQueen was basically talking about the movie industry. And it's, again, it kind of speaks to his hunger you know, he said he didn't just want to be a movie star. He wanted to know how the editor cut the film. He wanted to know how a cinematographer got a shot. He wanted to know distribution, how films are distributed, how much money they got. Because he said, I don't want to be a guy that just sits around waiting for the phone to ring. You know, that's why he had his motorcycle and his car life. But I love that quote because, again, it, sh- it speaks to his hunger because he was a he was a guy that had a ninth grade education. So um, I really have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, that's
2: another one of his big contradictions is you know he has a lot of quotes about saying that, you know, I I don't I don't read books. I'm not an educated man. I was a dummy in school. But then at the same time he's just he'll get on the set and he'll grill this the still photographer about his job and you know he has to know everything about everything everybody's doing and and that's it's another one of his Fascinating contradictions.
1: Well, and, and the other deeper contradiction is that he did uh, an Ibsen play called An Enemy of the People that he shot in 1970, shot in 76 and was never released. But, um, mm. you know, that's considered a classic. So that runs counter to his image. Uh, but we'll get it. We, we can get into why he did it. But he, he basically did it as, as, as a middle finger to the movie studio. But um, again, that was another contradiction of his. Mm hmm. And then the second quote I like um, is a funny one, and it it appeals to the cynic in me, um, and that was a reporter had asked him, what has success done for him? And he said, he repeated the question, he said, what has success done for me? Hmm, well, I seem to have a lot more friends. (laughs) (laughs) And there's that paranoia that you were speaking to, uh, because, you know, he was a guy that was paranoid of of people's um, uh, motivations. And um, and I've been around movie stars like that, and I don't I don't like being around them because I, I don't like being around anybody mm-hmm. who thinks I have a motive for wanting to be around them, and it makes you uncomfortable and very unsettled. Mm-hmm. But anyway, third quote was um, kind of on his acting technique. It was on the set of Papillon, and there's a scene there where um, they're getting ready to go to Devil's Island, and, and it's the character actor Don Gordon um, and another actor, and they're and then in, in the original scene mcqueen's asking questions and so mcqueen said i'd rather you guys ask the questions because i want to be the quote is i want to be the man that knows the answers i don't want to be the man that has to ask the questions and that speaks to his image as a as a hero and that you know he never has to question things he just kind of knows things and i thought that was very very interesting and revealing about him but i want to hear about your favorite quotes, <laughs> what, what you liked and why they appealed to you. It's,
0: it's maybe uh, one of the more obvious ones, but it really it's it's stands out to me. And it and it did in this book uh, and maybe in part because I like the photo of him with his dog playing at the dinner table. But um, <laughs> the quote about him saying everyone deserves not just to survive, but to live, I think, is a really it's a great quote in general. But it also it, I think it, it kind of to me sums up a lot of his 60s image and it really does speak to again that that sort of sense of freedom that sense of honesty and it just kind of digs down to something maybe even more primal that the early 60s or the 50s was trying to to you know at least uh, as far as uh, mainstream culture was trying to bury and it has that real sort of beatnik heart and it has that hippie heart to it and and you know, it's it's just again, it's I find it really interesting to think even of McQueen as being somebody who was genuinely into this, uh, you know, stuff. <laughs>
1: oh, I love it. That's great. I love that.
0: How about you, Bart? I was
1: more.
2: <laughs> I seem to be writing down the quotes that are uh, you know more more shocking or contradictory. There's actually one in particular about uh, about sizing up people that I'm trying to find right now that I yeah. didn't end up. I know which one you're right. talking about. Oh, do you? The
1: quote is, I can size people up. I'd come from re- reform school and had to rely on my instincts to keep me alive.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, um, you know, he's street smart and he, you know, in all his roles that, that always comes through that. I mean, maybe not Thomas Crown Affair, where he's uh, sort of playing against type and still doing a, a good job with it. But all of his characters are like, they come from the streets and they uh, they know how to how to size people up. They know they know where you stand before uh, you even say a word. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And they say they say the great generals uh, in our military have that skill. They, they size up their soldiers real quick. That's perhaps a skill that he had to learn as a movie star to in order to survive. So I can understand it.
0: I think even maybe some of those those bluer quotes are sort of interesting too, just for, you know, it's just also about street smarts and, and just showing an interesting side of somebody that especially nowadays you would not hear. <laughs> right. A lot it, of this stuff would have been, you know, PR scrubbed out. That's, but, that's
1: yeah. one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book was because I wanted to show people smarts just aren't, you know, I'm in academia um, but smarts don't just come from academia or intellect. Right. Uh, wisdom can come from many forms and, and many types of people and uh, I think he had uh, a certain wisdom to him because he had great exposure and I think uh, uh, exposure is probably the, the greatest teacher uh, that you can have.
2: I, I found my, uh, my favorite quote here and this really is uh, really captures the his, his way with language and his very particular way of talking. This go- is with a, a photo of him from the sand pebbles and uh, he says, I think I do better playing rusty hubcap roles than doing the Phi Beta Kappa thing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Rusty hubcap roles. I, 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 I like the idea of that. Well, the and the,
1: the, the funny thing is is that uh, as a kid, he used to steal hubcaps. <laughs> that was kind of his way of making the, a living um, on the streets. So it, it has personal meaning to him. But yeah, I know. He, he just has this vernacular that's that's really kind of funny.
2: And then you think of the flying hubcaps in Bullet, which you know, <laughs> <some> <laughs> hubcaps have followed him around all his life, I guess. Yeah,
1: I, I, you know, we I've had this discussion with other interviewers, and I, I keep saying, do do hubcaps even exist these days? Do they make them? I'm not so sure they do.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just notice when they're not there.
1: <laughs> That's true.
2: Well, I think before we go, is there? Um, Anything else you're working on, Marshall? That you wanna you wanna talk about that uh, that people might want to hear about?
1: Well, I am going in a different direction with my another my next book, and um, it'll be a biography of the evangelist Billy Graham. That's coming out in April. I didn't really plan or know anything about him, but um, he he was an interesting figure, just as interesting as Steve McQueen in, in a different sort of way. I didn't set on again doing a book on an evangelist or someone who's perceived as a saint. But uh, it, it was interesting in that he was a North Carolina country boy, and um, he didn't plan on becoming an evangelist either. So I focused on kind of like what his challenges were in life and uh, what set him apart. So that, that's going to be my next book.
2: And there's a Steve McQueen connection there too, right? Because the, right at the end of Steve's life, Billy Graham seemed to play a pretty important role.
1: Yes. At, at the end of Steve's life, when he, when he was going to go have his final operation in Mexico, you can kind of tell that that McQueen didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And I I based that on the tape recording I have of him three weeks before he passed. You know, in, in the tape, he didn't reveal if he knew the cancer was going to go away or not. But I think a few days before he passed, he requested Billy Graham's presence because, you know, Billy Graham represented to America, a very godly man. And so Steve wanted to know what the afterlife was going to be like. So, Uh, Graham went there, sat by his bedside, they talked for two hours, they prayed, and Steve said, well, let me get my Bible right before they were going to pray, and he couldn't find it. Billy had his with him, and he just instinctually handed it over to McQueen, and that became McQueen's uh, proudest possession. And when they, you know, McQueen passed away, and when when he died, they lifted up the sheet, he was clutching that Bible. So Billy Graham played a very, very important role in his life even though it was very brief
2: well we'll look forward to your next book and uh wish you best of luck with this current one which uh it just came out this month Isn't yes that right? that's right it came out november 7th and the name of that again is steve mcqueen in his own words well thanks for joining us this was a lot of fun yeah i, I really appreciate it and i
1: appreciate your insights i, I love um your interpretations of him and, and the movie because i uh i really i really get to hear that from other people cause People are always asking me about McQueen and I'm the kind that I like to, I like the hear as well as talk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. This is, it really is uh, Steve McQueen in his own words. It's it's a really interesting book. I think it's a, a pretty uh, brilliant idea too, to sort of have the man write his own autobiography through quotes. And uh, you know, you clearly had to do a bunch of research to find all of these quotes and then you have these really great photos in here. So it really it's eye-opening. Now I have to go back and read all of your other McQueen biographies because now I'm definitely well. Interested. Thank you.
1: If you read one, uh, I, the, the excerpt I sent you was "Steve McQueen: uh, The Life and Legend of a Hollywood Icon." It's about 600 pages, but it's definitive. Awesome. Great.
0: Look, I've I've read more than that on Elvis, so I'm ready. <laughs> you know, I've re-
1: you know, I've uh, I've uh, written three books on Elvis. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to go look read those too. I'm, yeah,
1: I'm... I, I did one with his bodyguard Sonny West. Ah. And then I did one with a lady who had an affair with Elvis, McQueen, and Jim Aubrey.
0: Nice.
1: Her name's Barbara <laughs> Lee. And then um, I did one on Elvis in the Army.
0: Oh, great! All right. Well, maybe we'll have to have you on for your Elvis, uh, '60s Elvis. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, we could do Inside. that. I mean, we could um, talk about uh, how he wanted to be a serious actor. He he wanted to. Uh, he wanted the McQueen role in Baby of the Rain Must Fall really bad.
0: Hmm. Huh. You
1: know, he, he yearned. And as a matter of fact, we talked about Dirty Harry. He was actually offered the role of Dirty Harry before Clint Eastwood, but uh, Colonel Tom Parker would not allow him to uh, destroy his image.
2: That would have been something, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would have been something. But he, he carried a magnum in real life, so it would not have been uh, a stretch. Oh, yeah. Right. He was obsessed with guns.
0: You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart Deloro and Jenna Ipkar. The theme song is Io la conosce bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out Cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema60 Podcast.
1: Thanks for tuning in.